you came back. <laughs> what were you guys thinking, man? Uh, yeah, we're so thrilled to have you back tonight. And uh, we did have a great day, as Rich said. And uh, hopefully tonight we can, just, we can just build on that. Now, l- last night to, you know, just a, w- a way for me to kind of get into the groove with the folks that would be coming in the evening, I, I started last night talking about why I'm not a Calvinist, and they didn't airbrush it this <laughs> today. I, I thought I was very clear about that last night. But we started talking about why I'm a Calvinist and, and why from, really, after you know, digging into all of this, why I'll no longer tiptoe through the tulips. I think there's, uh, there's plenty to get alarmed about, about what's really being said. The first reason that we looked at last night is that I'm not a Calvinist is because the simple fact of the Bible is that man's connection with God has always been his own choice, man's own choice. A second thing we looked at last night for why I'm not a Calvinist is because my final authority has not been determined by a theological system, but my theology, if you will, has been determined by my final authority. I don't want anybody imposing anything on what God clearly says in his word. And then the third reason that we looked at last night was because I've now learned what they mean by the terms that they use. And this is the real alarming part, is when you begin to find out the definitions that they apply to words we think we understand, wow, (laughs) it's not at all the same. And and so just by way of introduction tonight, I I wanted to add a, a fourth reason. Again, just by way of introduction, the way that this really worked out is I had planned to do the top ten reasons I'm not a Calvinist and do all of that last night. And, <laughs> and I don't have any clue what you're laughing about right now. <laughs> I was being honest with you guys, for real. I, I thought I was going to do that. <laughs> you guys know me better than I know myself, don't you? But, uh, shut up. <laughs> but... Uh, I, I do want to add a, an, another one tonight that I, I think is, is very significant. I'm, I'm not a Calvinist because I believe God could sue Reformed theology for defamation of character. And, and let me tell you what I mean by that. The thing I love about this church is there's a lot of middle schoolers that actually at least act interested. And you guys do a great job of at least acting interested, and I I appreciate that. I'll explain what I mean, okay? But y'all hang with me. Here here, here we go. Okay, so uh, obviously the God that we serve, the God of the Bible, is a God of unbelievable and incredible attributes. It would be cool, man, just if we would just start in this room tonight, just standing up and just talking about the incredible attributes of our God. And we could do that for quite a while, man. And we could, we could have a tremendous worship service just talking about the attributes of our God. But, but what is so cool is the Apostle John gets to the end of his life, and of course he's, he's writing under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. But he found a way to take the the attributes of of God, and and pull them all together, if you will, into two things that God actually is. 1 John chapter 1 and verse 5 says that God is light. He is light, meaning, of course, that God is holy. And the verse says, in him is no darkness at all. He is supremely holy, and there is and there will never be any sin, any evil, or anything close that is ever in him at all. And we refer to this, because of the way that it's worded, we we refer to his holiness as this is his essential Nature, And what we mean by that is that God 
is light. God is holy. He doesn't just possess qualities that, that cause him to demonstrate holiness. Hear it. He is holy. It is his nature to be holy. If he ceased to be holy, he would cease to be he would cease to be God. It is his nature. It is his essence. It's who God is. It's what he is. The clear teaching of Scripture is that God cannot be anything other than absolute, supreme, infinite, unqualified, unrestricted. I don't know what other words to use. Utter holiness. But not only is the God of the Bible holy, the book of 1 John says that God is something else. 1 John 4, 8 says that God is love. And again, what that's communicating is the biblical axiom that it is not simply a fact that God possesses qualities that cause him to demonstrate love, but that he is love. Again, meaning, it is his it's his nature to love, and he can't be anything other than love. Again, it's his essence, his essential nature. So much so that if God ceased to be love, he would cease to be God. Because love is who and what God is. God cannot be anything other than pure, unadulterated, complete, total, and perfect love. And I believe when you discover what the Calvinistic system actually teaches through the acronym TULIP that Jeff talked about yesterday morning, we looked at it a little bit last night, of course we talked about it through the day, that's the essence of the, those meetings, but but like we, we saw last night, how they actually defined the words in, in that acronym, TULIP, is different than the way that we define those words. And, and by the time they come up with a definition of those things, listen, it's not just a difference of opinion or interpretation on some, some non-essential doctrines, but, but differences, listen, y'all, Differences that hit at the very core of who the God of the Bible is in his essential nature as holiness and love. Because I, I contend that the, the Calvinist representation of our God as he is presented in Scripture is a misrepresentation. And to take that up just a few notches as I said at the beginning, a defamation of character. And for you middle schoolers that may not understand defamation of character, it's like when a newspaper or some news media outlet communicates something about somebody that isn't true, they can be sued for defamation of character. And again, I believe that the God of the Bible could sue Reformed theology for that very fact. And, and let me just give you one key example of that tonight. Let's just take one of the Calvinist key words, a word that they use a whole lot in their preaching and a whole lot in, in explaining their system. Let, let's talk tonight for just a little bit about the word sovereignty. We would believe that the God of the Bible is sovereign, okay? And again, our understanding and our usage of the words is that God says what he says, and he does what he does because he is who he is, and he doesn't need to check in with me or any other heap of flesh for approval or confirmation about anything. He is the supreme ruler who possesses supreme power, and his power is unquestionable. It's irrefutable. 
It's indisputable. He answers to no one other than his own triune self. And yet, we would understand that God in his sovereignty would never and could never be separate from that essential nature that we just talked about, the fact that he is holy and he is love. In other words, God in his sovereignty, God in his supreme authority, his supreme power and rulership and kingship will always, always, always exercise that authority within the realm of his own holiness and love. And I think that's the biggest no-brainer in the history of earth. It's totally logical because it's totally biblical, but make sure you understand something. What I just described to you in common man language about the sovereignty of God is not what Calvinists teach about the sovereignty of God. Because you know what the Calvinists actually teach when it comes to sovereignty? That anything and everything that happens doesn't just happen within the realm of God's foreknowledge or the fact that he knew what would happen before it would happen because he's omniscient or all-knowing. Not that. What Calvinism teaches is that whatever happens, happens because God decreed it. It happened because God willed it. It happened not only because God allowed it to happen, it happened because God appointed it to happen. To the point that, ladies, if you get raped, it's because God willed it to happen. And fellas... If some sexual predator molests your eight-year-old daughter, don't get too freaked out by it because God decreed that that would happen before the foundation of the world. And I know that by saying that, there's probably a lot of you that are thinking right now that, uh, once again, I'm exaggerating the violence that this system does to the God of the Bible and his sovereignty, but I assure you that I'm not. Once again, let me let them speak for themselves. Lorraine Botner writes, listen to this, y'all. Even the fall of Adam and through him the fall of the race was not by chance or accident, but was so ordained in the secret counsels of God. Zanchus writes, surely if God had not willed the fall, he could and no doubt would have prevented it, but he did not prevent it, ergo, and you'd have to be Brett Bartlett to know the word ergo. (laughs) It just stands to reason that he willed it. Wait, did he just say that God chose the fall? If he willed it, he certainly decreed it. Arthur Pink writes, Plainly, it was God's will that sin should enter this world. Otherwise, it would not have entered, for nothing happens save as God has eternally decreed. And Pink goes on to say, not only had God a perfect foreknowledge the outcome of Adam's trial, not only did his omniscient eye see Adam eating of the forbidden fruit, but he decreed beforehand that he should do so. And I submit to you that to have done that would have violated God's essential nature as holy and love. Let, let, let me illustrate it for you this way. And I think this, is, I think this is very legitimate. I think it's an apples for apples illustration. L- let's, let's say, God forbid, that my wife 
or, or my daughter got raped. And I have the occasion shortly thereafter to see that guy face to face. Okay, do you feel my hurt? Okay. And I'm looking at the guy like any man in this room wanting to pull his head off. And he looks at me and he says, she got what she wanted. If that's for me, tell him I'm busy. <laughs> she got what she wanted. Okay, this, this isn't going to sound real spiritual, y'all, okay? But at that moment, because of the character of my wife and my daughter, for you to defame the character of them by a statement like that, I am going to... And I, 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 You know what? Thank you, fellas. I don't even have to say it. Every man in this room understands that, man. And I, I think it's apples for apples to say that my God, who is pure and spotless and perfect and impeccably and completely holy, willed, chose, decreed, predestined, foreordained man's fall with all of its putrefying horrificness that came with it. Again, I, I say that it strikes not only against what God wants, but who God is in his essential nature. Okay. Breathe, trot dog. <laughs> Breathe. But, but really, when you begin to hear where this goes, it, it's a system that is it's crazy. Okay, but there's some verses that quite honestly, we tend to look at and get a little warm in our cheeks, a little nervous about, oh, it sounds like they may... They may be on to something here. Okay, and so tonight and the next several nights, we're going to be talking about some of those. Okay, so tonight we're going to be looking, and you can turn in your Bibles, if you would, to 2 Thessalonians chapter 2, verses 13 and 14. And let me just say right from the beginning that the thing that makes these verses so difficult aren't really the verses themselves, the thing that makes them difficult is conditioning. Like we, we, we were talking about last night, Reformed theology becomes a, a filter that, that you see the, the Bible through, that you, 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 you read it. And, and what happens when you, you put that filter over it, you begin to read into verses things that aren't there. And I believe that's the case with the verses that we'll be looking at tonight. So let's begin by reading the verses together. Paul says in 2 Thessalonians chapter 2, verses 13 and 14, But we are bound to give thanks always to God for you, brethren, beloved of the Lord, because God hath from the beginning chosen you to salvation through sanctification of the Spirit and belief of the truth, Whereunto he called you by our gospel to the obtaining of the glory of our Lord Jesus Christ. And so you see, here's what happens to people. They, they come down through here and they see the phrase from the beginning. That, that God hath from the beginning chosen you to salvation. And because of their conditioning, they read into it before the foundation of the world. In eternity past. They see the word chosen there. And they read into it 
that God chose some in eternity past to be saved, and regardless of their, their personal will, it's going to happen. It's going to happen because God willed it. Or, or that God's will will overpower the will of the person so that they will to receive his salvation. They see another word there. They see the word called there in verse 14. And they, they read into it that this salvation thing was our calling, our predisposition, if you will. Now, we, we talked a little bit about this in the morning sessions, and I realize not everybody is able to be there for that. But listen, where you land on this, you're either labeled a, a Calvinist or an Arminian. Okay? Now, John Calvin and Jacob Arminius had issues that divided them several hundred years ago that aren't necessarily the issues that divide Arminians and Calvinists today. But the basic Arminian position is, when it's used today, okay, and again, this is just a simplification, but the basic Arminian position is that when it comes to salvation, whosoever will may come. The basic Calvinist position is expressed today as only the quote-unquote elect will be saved. Again, that in eternity past, God chose the ones who will be saved, and those are the only ones that will ever be saved. Now, quite honestly, because of my conditioning early on in the, in the ministry, I became a, a middle-of-the-roader on this thing. And, and I, I, I taught for, well, it was almost a millennium, I think, we, in this church, we taught on church history. Church history is the thing that caused me to see this in a whole different perspective because, again, I understood that Calvinism was Augustinianism, which is Catholicism. And once I saw that, I said, hold the phone, baby. I, I understand that system. But before that study, if you would have asked me, are you an Arminian or a Calvinist? I, I would have answered, yes. <laughs> Meaning, you know, I'm, I'm both. And, and at that time, okay, I would have told you, that there's no doubt about it, that the Bible teaches whosoever will may come. And I also would have told you that there's no doubt about it, that the Bible says that we were chosen before the foundation of the world. And if you would have asked me how I reconciled those two contradictory statements, I very piously would have answered the way that Spurgeon, when he was asked that question, I would have answered with a Spurgeon-esque comment, Friends don't need to be reconciled. <laughs> and I would have felt very spiritual in, in, in saying that. Okay, meaning that God put both in the Bible, so they must both be true. And in the human mind, they don't come together. They come together in the mind of God. So rather than force them to come together, let's, let's let God be God. You know, because the Bible says his ways are not our ways and his thoughts are not our ways and the secret things belong to the Lord. So, hey, just accept that the Bible teaches both. Okay, and I would have very humbly held that position. I, and I could have given you some cute illustrations for my, my humble approach to, to this. I, I would have said something like this. You know, it kind of goes like this. You know... Over the gates of heaven, there is a sign that says, whosoever will may come. And, and when you walk through the gate and you look back on this side of it, it says, chosen before the foundation of the world. And I thought that was cool. I really liked giving that illustration because it made me feel smart. And I need all the help I can get. Another way that I would have explained it is like this. It's like a train track. 
Okay, and, and one track is is the free will of man, and the other track is the sovereignty of God, or the fact that God chooses who He wants to to be saved by His own will. And and, and these tracks, if you can visualize this. These tracks go off into space, and so as far as the eye can see and the mind can comprehend, it looks like they run parallel to each other, but somewhere way out in eternity, by the time those tracks get to the throne of God, they connect. And again, I thought that was even cooler than the other illustration, man. So, if someone were to ask me today, so what are you? Are you an Arminian or a Calvinist? I, I would say, hey man, I'm, I'm, I'm neither. You know what I tell them? I, and I do. I, I tell them I'm, I'm a Bible believer. And, and if I'm going to believe something, I don't want it associated with man's name. I don't want to be called by a man's name. I'm a child of God. I'm called by his name. And God gave me a book. And I believe that book. I'm, I'm a Bible believer. You say, but okay, yeah, that, that's, that's cute. <laughs> yeah, that, that sounds great, Pastor Mark, but that, that passage that we just read says in verse 13, I mean, it's right there in black and white, God hath from the beginning chosen you to salvation. And, and Pastor Mark, we've known you for over 30 years now, man, and as far back as we can remember, you've always told us and you've hammered the fact that our job when it comes to this book is to leave it as we find it, don't add to it, don't take away from it, just leave it the way that it is and stop trying to figure out what it means just simply believe what it says. Pastor Mark, those are your very own words. And what this passage says is, God hath from the beginning chosen you to salvation. And you're exactly right. That's exactly what it says. And that's exactly what it means. The only problem is, and again, this is what makes the verses seem difficult, it's because our minds have been conditioned to read into them things that aren't there to make them say things that they don't say. And let me illustrate it to you, to the, to you this way. Do you remember when we, were, when we were kids and we would be in school and be bored? Now, some of you are probably doing this now because you're bored but you remember we used to draw a box like this? And, and of course, you can see that the front of the box is kind of in the middle of the screen, and it's going up and to the right, right? Okay. Well, just, just look right in the, the middle of it for a second. Does anything happen to the box? All of a sudden, you're looking at the same exact box, and it flips on you. And once you see it like that, you're like, whoa, I can't get it back the other way. <laughs> and then you look at it and it flips and you're like, whoa, where'd that go? <laughs> okay. The passages that we're going to be looking at the next several nights, are, they're a lot like that. You know, some of us tonight are reading 2 Thessalonians chapter 2, verses 13 and 14, and, and we see them going up and to the right, while other people read the same exact, exact verses and see them going down and to the left. And, and what I want us to do is look at these verses long enough tonight to, to see if we couldn't see how God sees them how God inspired the Apostle Paul to write. And I think that, I really do believe that we can do that if we just employ the same basic principles of Bible study that we use every week. Nothing fancy, just simple principles of Bible study. And listen, there is not a more basic principle of Bible study than the principle of context. 
And, and if we'll just keep these verses in this, their context, it nails this passage, y'all. And the way that I put this in your notes is that there are two keys that unlock our understanding of these verses biblically, and the first one is the context. Now, if you do what, what Peter talked about in 2 Peter chapter 3 and verse 16, and that is you go in and you rest these verses out of their context, and you're just going to look at verse 13 and 14. You're going to wrestle that out of that context. Ooh, Calvinists may have a point. In their context, they got nothing. That ain't good English. And I, again, I believe that's exactly what the Calvinists do with these verses. I, I believe they rest these verses out of their context to prove their point, but kept in their context, you can never make it say what they tell you it says. And, and so I, I, I want to say to you, before we actually start digging into this, that if you're looking for some deep exposition, you're going to be leaving sorely disappointed because it is... In the context, listen, these verses are embarrassingly simple. And again, that may not be the way that the theologians like it, but like we talked about last night, that is the way that God likes it, and that is the way that he's designed his truth, lest our minds, as we saw from 2 Corinthians 11, lest our minds be corrupted and be moved away from the simplicity that is in Christ. And so... Let's, let's apply the KISS principle to these verses. Keep it simple, saints. Now, now again, th this is simple, but that doesn't mean that we don't have to work, okay? Second Th uh, Timothy chapter 2 and verse 15 calls us workmen, okay? Now, I, I will tell you, if, if we're going to get this and you're going to understand the context, you will have to work with me. You, you ready to work tonight? Okay, let, let, let's do that. Now, I want you to look in, in 2 Thessalonians chapter 2, in verse 13. And, and I, I want you to just look at the first word, and, and the word is but. Okay, you know, the, the further you go in, in, in studying the Bible, the more you understand that the simplest words are often the most important in understanding the passage. And, and, and the word but is such a word. The, the word but is a connecting word. It, it, it lets us know that the things that he's about to say have a connection with what he's just said. So it helps us to understand that this is not a new subject that's being introduced in the passage. It is a continuation of thought. So again, we cannot, with the first word, but, we cannot go to this verse and not put them in their context because it's a connecting word. But, but something else about this word, but, it's also a contrasting word. Okay, and I know that this, this sounds like we're in fifth grade, doesn't it? It's simple, man. It, it lets us know that there is a comparison or a contrast that's being made with what he's just explained. So the question is, what has he just explained? Okay, now this is where we're going to have to be workmen. So I'm, I'm telling you ahead of time, work with me as we seek to get the context, because if you get the context, you're there, okay? Now, you'll, you'll notice, look at the end of verse 3. He begins talking about the revealing or the, the revelation, if you will, of the Antichrist. And Paul begins describing how, at a certain point in history, he will be revealed, and as he begins to talk about this revelation, he begins to talk about his agenda. In verse 4, it describes him as he who opposeth and exalteth himself above all that is called God or that is worshipped. 
so that he, as God, sitteth in the, the temple of God that's obviously going to be reconstructed in the very near future because he's coming into that temple at the midpoint of the tribulation. And the reason he's doing that is to show the entire world, showing himself that he is God. And Paul says in verse 5, Remember ye not that when I was yet with you, I told you these things? In other words, we covered this ground before. We got into all of this teaching when I was with you face to face. And so he says in verse 6, And now ye know what withholdeth. That he, okay, would you look in verse 6? And who is the he that he's talking about there? The Antichrist. And now ye know what withholdeth he, the Antichrist, or that he, the Antichrist, might be revealed in his time. So listen very carefully. What he's saying in verses 3 through 6 is that the Antichrist is going to be revealed. But something is withholding that revelation right now. And he tells the Thessalonians, and you know what it is. Because I told you what it was when I was with you. Okay, now our problem is we weren't there. So, so we don't know what the Thessalonians already knew. We don't know what's been withholding the revelation of the Antichrist. But the good news is, in the context, he tells us in verse 7, and he reminds the Thessalonians of what it is, and, and what is it that's been withholding? It is the mystery of iniquity that's been doing this withholding. Verse 7 says, for the mystery of iniquity doth already work. And, and biblically, and of course we don't have time to exhaust this because we're trying to just set the context. But what we find from 1 John chapter 4 and verse 3 and Ephesians chapter 2 and verse 2 is that the mystery of iniquity, listen, this isn't hard. The mystery of iniquity is a satanic spirit of evil that is against Jesus Christ and against God's purposes through him that have been operative since sin entered or iniquity entered into the world in Genesis chapter 3. It is a, an iniquitous spirit. Brett, Brett, is that a word? The spirit of iniquity. An iniquitous spirit, an evil, spiritual power. Listen, what the text says is that it has been what has been withholding the revealing of the Antichrist, who back in verse 3 is the man of sin, the son of perdition. He is Satan in human flesh. And all through the centuries, what has been Keeping that from being revealed is the mystery of iniquity. And the rest of verse 7, look at it. The rest of verse 7 is where those of us who scream the loudest about the principle of context and sticking only with what the text itself says and not letting some man's theological system be placed over the Bible to dictate to us what we actually, actually believe about that book. The, the, the middle of verse 7 is where we forget all of that. And, and we let someone tell us that the he in the middle of verse 7 is the Holy Spirit. It, it says only he who now letteth or is doing this withholding, this restraining, they want to tell us, will let until he be taken out of the way. Now, now listen, the standard dispensational view is that the Holy Spirit is the he in this verse. And that the he, the Holy Spirit, he is the restrainer. 
And the teaching goes like this, that the Holy Spirit in this dispensation that we're living in, that is called the church age, he lives inside of us. The Holy Spirit lives inside of the church. And so when the rapture takes place, the Holy Spirit will be removed and will no longer restrain or withhold the revelation of the Antichrist. And then our traditional view, verse 8, and then shall that wicked, the Antichrist, be revealed. And like I said last night, that makes sense if you don't think about it. Because the fact is, y'all, when we get to 2 Thessalonians chapter 2 and verse 7, this is the 18th verse in this book. And the Holy Spirit has not been mentioned one time. Now, I ain't too good in that there English department. But, but I think I do remember a little principle that a pronoun like he has to be set by a, a noun. And, and, and I think we might want to be careful about letting a theological system dictate to us our interpretation of the Bible and become our filter that clouds how we read the Bible, lest our theological system become our final authority. And, and again, I don't want to spend a whole lot of time on this, but if we're going to call the Calvinist out for using Reformed theology as the filter that they use to read the Bible, we better make sure we're not guilty of doing the same exact thing with our dispensational theology. Listen, the he in verse 7, both grammatically and biblically, is none other than the Antichrist himself. The pronoun he in verse 7 was set by the noun in verse 8, the man of sin who is the son of perdition. And the pronoun he, look in verse 6, it's obviously referring to the man of sin, the son of perdition. And so grammatically, we can't all of a sudden invent a new he when we get to verse, the middle of verse 7, right? You guys get that? Okay, cool. Again, I say, keep it simple, saints. Let the Bible be the Bible. Just believe what it says. And what it says is that the mystery of iniquity has already been working. As I said, it's been working ever since iniquity entered into this, this world. And Satan has always had someone at any given time in history, who was the personification of the mystery of iniquity. It, it, he was the one that the mystery of iniquity was working through. But the ultimate man of sin, that wicked, won't be revealed until Satan and human flesh, look at what the end of verse 7 says, until he, the man of sin, that wicked be taken out of the way. You say, well, what does that mean, man? Well, if we'll compare Scripture with Scripture, like we say we're very accustomed to doing, according to Revelation chapter 13, verses 1 through 3, John, is, as you can see, is talking about the, the beast here. Anybody know who the, the, the beast is? The beast is the man of sin the son of perdition, that wicked Satan in human flesh. And, and so listen now. The beast, for the first three and a half years of the tribulation, the mystery of iniquity will have been working through him. He will be the embodiment of the mystery of iniquity. But no one will really know that until he be taken out of the way. And what verse 3 talks about here is the fact that three and a half years into the tribulation, the Antichrist, the man of sin, the son of perdition, that wicked, is going to receive a deadly head wound. 
And you know what's going to happen at that point? He'll be taken out of the way. And the end of the verse, verse 3, going into verse 4, it says that what's going to happen that all the world is going to see is that that deadly head wound is going to be healed and he'll rise from the dead. A counterfeit resurrection because after all he is the anti-Christ. He is the dragon the Revelation 12.9 says is Satan. And what happens at this point is Satan takes up residence in him and he at that point literally becomes Satan in human flesh. And verse 5 says that he'll minister for 42 months or three and a half years on this planet, a counterfeit to Christ's earthly ministry because after all he is the antichrist now listen and when we go back to second thessalonians chapter 2 verses 7 and 8 it, it, when it talks about until he be taken out of the way and then shall that wicked be revealed you got that that scared me. You understand that? Okay. Now, I felt it necessary to go into all of that because if there's one thing I'm hoping that will come out of this conference doing is making sure that for the rest of our life, we are letting the text and the context tell us what we believe. Not anybody's party line, not anybody's theological system. And so from, okay, so from verses 3 through the first part of verse 8, Paul's been explaining to us the revealing of the Antichrist. Okay, remember, that's why I was telling you we got to be workmen. That's Okay, there's a lot right there. And what Paul explains to us in the rest of verses 8 and 9 is the destiny of the Antichrist. Absolutely love these verses. What he lets us know is that the Antichrist is going to be consumed with the Word of God and he will be destroyed by the glory of God. And then, after revealing to us the destiny of the Antichrist, in verses 10 through 12, he reveals to us the destiny of those who enter the tribulation not knowing Christ. And I want you to listen to this now, because this is, this is important, because this is the immediate context that Paul is contrasting when we come to verses 13 and 14 that we're trying to get our heads wrapped around tonight. So make sure that you, you see this. He says, beginning in the middle of verse 10, that they will perish. And verse 11, that they will be sent strong delusion and that they will believe the lie of the Antichrist and they will take his mark. Which leads to the third thing, and that is, verse 12, they will be damned. Eternally separated from God, eternally condemned, eternally tormented in hell, they will be damned. But now listen, you've got to see why. I mean, why this perishing why this delusion why this damnation is it because god didn't love them is it because christ didn't die for them is it because god didn't choose them to salvation is it because god didn't will them to be saved is it because they weren't called is it because they didn't know? Is it because they didn't understand? Absolutely not. There's not a hint of any of those things. The passage tells us specifically why the perishing, why the delusion, why the damnation. Look in the middle of verse 10. They perish. Look at it. Because they received not the love of the truth that they might be saved. 
It wasn't that they didn't have the truth. It was that they refused to receive the truth. It wasn't that they weren't chosen to be saved or that they couldn't be saved. The end of verse 10 very clearly tells you they could be saved. Listen, folks. I think Jeff may have said this this morning. The God of the Bible is not a God that will hold a man accountable for something that he's incapable of doing. Every man can be saved. But no man will be saved who doesn't receive the truth. So why do people perish? Because they, by the choice of their own will, as this passage says, receive not the love of the truth that they might be saved. Why are they damned? Because God was sitting around one day with nothing to do in eternity past. And he said, you know, one of these days, I ain't going to do it today because I don't feel like it. But one of these days, I'm going to create a planet called Earth. And when I do that, I'm going to put a bunch of people on it. And again, since I don't feel like creating them today, I think I'll think them all up in my head right now. And then after I've got them there, I'm going to pick some to go to heaven when they die, and I'm going to pick some to go to hell. Now, now folks, when I was a middle-of-the-roader, you could have gotten me to say that God picked some people to go to heaven. But I couldn't get it out of my mouth that God picked some people to go to hell. No, he, he only chose people to go to heaven. But listen, anyway, you slice this thing, if you've got a God choosing an eternity past, some to go to heaven, whoever he didn't choose, he automatically chose to go to... So, so the passage is actually teaching that, that people are, are going to be damned not because God just arbitrarily in eternity past started going through those he knew he had created and he said, okay, this one for salvation, that one for damnation, this one for heaven, and, and this one for, for hell. Could you ever in a million years get that out of that passage? Now, verse 12 is, says that they all might be damned who what? Believed not the truth. And, and there it is again, man. The issue isn't that they couldn't. The issue is that they, they wouldn't. They willfully chose by their own volition not to believe it. And, and, and listen, this, this passage is so cool, man. It's not that God's plan of salvation is difficult or hard to understand or hard to believe. He gets in this passage to the bottom line on why men and women choose not to believe the truth. It's not a problem of intellect. It's not a problem of just not getting it. The end of verse 12 says it's because they have what? Pleasure in unrighteousness in other words they love their sin so much they refuse to receive what he calls back in verse 10 the love of the truth now you may be listening to my voice tonight and you know the truth but you've never received the truth and you've tried to convince yourself that you're not really sure whether or not you really believe all this stuff or not. And you know what you're doing according to verse 12? You're, you're psyching yourself out. You tell yourself you don't know if you believe it because you don't want to stop sinning. Because you love yourself 
and you want to make yourself feel good, and you're enjoying the trip right now. And, and listen, the Bible is an honest book, y'all. It even says that there is pleasure in sin for a season. But let me tell you, the season's going to change. And if the rapture were to take place today, and you, having never received the gospel, you would enter the tribulation. And according to this passage... You will receive the mark of the beast because you will be sent strong delusion because that's what you told God you wanted and you will perish and you will be damned forever and ever not because it was God's will. 2 Peter 3.9 doesn't get any more simple than this. God is not willing that any should perish but that all should come to repentance. You will perish and be damned for all of eternity because of your own will. Because you weren't willing to turn from sin to receive the only one who is the way, the truth, and the life by simply believing the truth rather than believing a lie. Listen, y'all. That is... In this passage, that is as simple and clear as it could possibly be, and it undoes the whole system of Calvinism on several different levels. Just those simple little verses, verses 10 through 12. And then he comes to verse 13. Oh, are you finally going to hit that? Okay. But... And this is the second key that unlocks our understanding of these verses biblically. And it's the contrast. And here's the contrast. But we are bound to give thanks always to God for you, brethren beloved of the Lord. And you can see it already, man. He's contrasting the destiny of those who will enter the tribulation not knowing Christ with the destiny of those who will be removed at the rapture. The people that comprise the church of Thessalonians. One group did chose not to believe the truth, but the Thessalonians, they did. They believed it, man. They received the truth. But, but why will they be removed at the rapture? Continue reading in verse 13. Because God hath from the beginning chosen you to salvation. And that's where our mind shuts off. But watch what it goes on to say. Through. Well, it wasn't a period there. Through. He, he chose you to salvation through something. We better look at what it was through. It was through the sanctification of the Spirit and belief of the truth. (laughs) And you can see, that's the contrast in verse 13. I I put this as the note on your study sheet. The Thessalonians, the ones he's writing to, heard the truth and believed it. As opposed to those in verse 12 who heard the truth and chose not to believe it. And you see, that was what what has made Paul and Silas and Timothy, that's the we at the beginning of verse 13, that's what has made them bound to give thanks all the way to God for the Thessalonians. It was because the destiny of those people in the church at Thessalonica had been changed. And why had their destiny been changed, y'all? It was because... They didn't reject the truth. It was because they believed the truth. It was because they received the truth. Hey, it doesn't get any simpler than that. What verse 13 says, you believe the truth. Verse 14, you'll be glorified. And that's said in contrast to verse 12. You don't believe the truth, and you'll be damned. That's the contrast. And that's the context. And once you get that established by comparing Scripture with Scripture, the rest of this isn't really that difficult. You say, well, what about that 
God has from the beginning chosen you to salvation part in verse 13. Okay, well, let's look at it. First of all, let's look at the phrase, from the beginning. You guys still working with me? Okay. Now, now, like I mentioned earlier, we tend to hear that phrase, and because of our conditioning, because of our conditioning, we think of eternity past. You know, we think Genesis 1-1, in the beginning... God created the heaven and the earth. We think John 1, 1, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. But, okay, work with me. The beginning in the Bible has two different uses. And certainly one of them is the beginning, as in the beginning beginning, the very beginning. But it's also used to refer to the beginning of something particular, something that began at a particular point in time. And you say, well, how would we know that? Okay, I'm getting ready to show you. Well, how would we know the difference if there is a difference? <laughs> you, you know that by the usage, by how it's used in the context. Let me show you what I mean in the book of 1 John. You can turn there or it's going to be on the screen. The book of 1 John, and I want you to look at verse 1. That which was what? From the beginning. Same exact phrase that we're looking at in 2 Thessalonians 2.13. That which was from the beginning, which we have heard, which we have seen with our eyes, which we have looked upon, and our hands have handled of the word, capital W, of life. And who is John referring to here? Exactly, the same one he's referring to in the very first verse of his gospel, John 1, 1, where it says, in the beginning was the capital word. So obviously, the beginning that he's talking about here is in reference to he who was from the beginning, referring to eternity past. But now drop down to chapter 2 of 1 John, and verse 7, and watch this. Brethren, I write no new commandment unto you, but an old commandment which you had, what? From the beginning. Same exact phrase. But I ask you, look in verse 7. Did they have the commandment since eternity past? Is that what he's saying? Obviously not. Keep going in verse 7. The old commandment is the word which ye heard, have heard, here it is again, from the beginning. Same exact phrase. And you see, he's not talking about eternity past here. He's talking about when they began to hear the proclamation of the word. There came a particular point in time when these people heard this commandment. And from that very beginning, he says, you understood it. Again, the same phrase in 1 John 1, 1, and in the same book, 1 John 2, 7, same phrase, from the beginning, but they both have different meanings, and you determine the meaning very simply by how it's used in the context. And that's very important for us to understand when we now come back to 2 Thessalonians chapter 2 and verse 13 and see what the context is talking about here. Look at it again. But we are bound to give thanks always to God for you, brethren, beloved of the Lord, because God hath from the beginning chosen you to salvation through, and here comes the means whereby God chose them to salvation, two things, sanctification of the Spirit, being set apart by the Spirit of God, and we'll go into detail on that in just a second, but he says a second thing that you were chosen for salvation through, and that was, number two, belief of the truth. Okay, so how were you chosen to salvation? Through sanctification of the Spirit and belief of the truth. Now that's how we were chosen. The question we're trying to determine is not how, but when. It says, 
from the beginning. Okay, well, what's the beginning that he's talking about here? Is it eternity past? Or when they heard the word. And what did we learn that was the key to understanding the meaning? It's context, right? And there's no doubt about what the context reveals about the beginning that he's talking about here. It says, God hath from the beginning chosen you to salvation through sanctification of the Spirit and belief of the truth. And when was it that the Thessalonians believed the truth? Did they believe it in eternity past? No. They believed the truth when Paul and Silas and Timothy came to Thessalonica and preached the gospel to them from that beginning. So what verses 13 and 14 are actually saying is this, and I put this as the conclusion on your study sheet. What 2 Thessalonians chapter 2, verses 13 and 14 are actually saying is, that at the point in time in which God brought Paul, Silas, and Timothy to Thessalonica, which was actually that time, listen, that the Spirit of God sanctified them or separated out those people to hear the proclamation of the gospel. And those people being set apart by the Spirit for the proclamation of the gospel... They responded by their own will to believe the truth. And from that beginning, God chose them to salvation. And, and don't pack up just yet, okay? We got the last blank, okay? Hold, hold up just one second, and, I, and I'll be through. These verses don't say that God chose us to salvation in eternity past through the arbitrary impulse of his own good pleasure. It says he chose us from the beginning of the time that God by his spirit set us apart to hear the truth and we responded in obedience by believing it. And the biblical reality is, y'all, when the spirit of God orchestrates the events in anyone's life so that they hear the proclamation of the truth of God. And remember Titus chapter 2 and verse 11. The grace of God that bringeth salvation hath appeared to all men. And when any person hears the proclamation of the truth of the gospel and they receive the love of the truth, and believe the truth. You know what God chooses to do? He chooses to save them. <laughs> and that's what this passage is saying without anybody's theological system being put over the top of it to tell us what our definitions have got to be. Now I know that was, that was hairy, wasn't it? But it... it, it if you just keep it in its context, it's really simple. And I know, you're packing up on me. I, I know that someone is going to say, okay, that was cool. You kept that in its context. It means what it says. But what about that Ephesians 1 passage? Because it says that he chose us in him before the foundation of the world. And he predestinated us unto the adoption of children. And it wasn't because we believed the truth. It was according to the good pleasure of his will. And that's what we're going to talk about tomorrow night. <laughs> <laughs>